welcome to the Relationship Recovery Podcast, hosted by Jessica Knight, a certified life coach who specializes in narcissistic and emotional abuse. This podcast is intended to help you identify manipulative and abusive behavior, set boundaries with yourself and others, and heal the relationship with yourself so you can learn to love in a healthy way. Hello, everybody. Today, I have a very special guest, Tori Benitez of Onyx Arrow Consulting, who is a high-conflict divorce coach. Tori and I connected on Instagram, and she is a wealth of knowledge on the family court system. She has personally experienced the abuse and corruption of the family court system for over 10 years. After leaving an abusive relationship, And having firsthand experience with lack of police help, lack of help from domestic violence shelters, and lack of friends and family, she found herself homeless with no job and had just left a relationship where her partner had coerced her into being a stay-at-home parent. She has been fighting for many years and now helps women who are struggling within the family court system. We have a very honest, very straightforward very real conversation about navigating the realities of the family court system and how you can protect yourself. Tori and I are both trained divorce coaches. We both have different backgrounds. We both have different approaches. But if you are divorcing a narcissist, if you are divorcing somebody that is high conflict, I highly, highly recommend reaching out. All of Tori's information, you can find her at onyx-arrowcoaching.com. And I will put all of her contact information in the show notes. Keep in mind, we are both not lawyers. We are not qualified to give legal advice, but we are able to provide coaching and consulting. And that's what we're here for. Hi, Tori. Thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, I'm so excited for this. Me too. Can you tell us who you are and what you do? Yeah. So my name is Tori. I am based out of California. I actually like to call myself because I'm more of a family court strategist. I feel like I go beyond a coach. I do have like legal degrees and certifications, an electronic discovery certification. And then I also did the high conflict divorce and custody through Tina Swithin of One Mom's Battle. So I feel like I... I mean, have touched on everything as far as like the legal process, navigating domestic violence and strategy in the family court system. So I help victims of domestic violence leave the abusive relationship and help them navigate post-separation abuse in the family court system. And you call, I saw on your Instagram, you call yourself a family court strategist. Yeah. Which I loved. And so what are some of the ways that you work with people in strategizing in their case? So I help them in a way that I feel like most attorneys kind of fail just, you know, putting it out there that I'm not an attorney, but I do feel like there's a huge gap in the system as far as the services and the guidance that attorneys give clients, especially victims of domestic violence. I feel like a lot of court professionals miss identifying the abuse and don't even give that credit to their clients as far as how hard it is to vocalize the abuse and to document it and to use impact statements when even just writing your declaration. And a lot of times I find people 
going to attorneys or even domestic violence organizations and just being left with being asked, well, what evidence do you have? And when you don't know what to look for, no one tells you. So do you need pictures? Do you need recording? Do you need a timeline? How do you save your documents? A lot of people can't even afford an attorney. So how do you present it in court? And I kind of touch on all of that with my clients. Yeah. And I know we'll dive into some of those things today, but I definitely think that it's really important and it's so important to know what you're doing so you also don't have to go back and fix everything once you're told what you need. Yeah. So to dive in, I wanted to start with an understanding of what high conflict divorce is. Can you tell us your definition of a high conflict divorce? Yeah, I feel like a lot of people use this phrase. And especially when you get into family court, the definition is different with many people. You get into family court and the judges say, oh, it's high conflict. And their definition is just two people who don't get along. I, not only from being a victim survivor of domestic violence, but navigating family court myself and what my clients go through The underlying issue of a true high conflict case is abuse. Yeah. And you and I are trained. We're both trained by Tina Swithin and went through Tina Swithin's training. And I believe in her training, they said that if you're in the family court system, you have a high conflict divorce. Do you agree with that? I don't necessarily agree with that only because you see people who are getting a divorce who know that they don't want to be with that partner anymore. Maybe there's no abuse and you still have to go Mm -hmm. through family court to get a divorce. Mm -hmm. So it's not necessarily because you're in the family court system that you're in a high conflict case. It could be even addressing custody, addressing establishing parental rights. So there's a lot of other layers to why someone would be in the family court system. But those who are in it for years or costing thousands of dollars. That is because of the abuse. And the average cost of a high conflict case is $40,000. Yeah. Do you believe that the family court system labels both parties as high conflict, even if it's fueled by one? Oh, absolutely. I think that they are very generally uneducated on abuse in California. Court professionals only need 16 hours a year on domestic violence. And if you think about it, to me, that's not enough. That is not enough training on domestic violence. When you have all of these nuances of abuse, there's narcissistic abuse, there's Mm -hmm. financial abuse, there's all of these, what you call silent forms of abuse. And the victim is left to identify it and explain it. But when they don't know what it's called or what signs they're even looking for or how they got there in the first place. How are they going to identify that to family court? And then for a court professional to only have 16 hours a year on training, they're probably not going to know. And I always thought it was so interesting that in the family court system, and I went into this without any training, any knowledge, and I didn't even know that I was in a high conflict case. I just knew that things were happening that I didn't understand. I didn't know why we would come to an agreement and then the next five minutes that agreement was off the table or that everything was framed that I was being crazy and controlling when I just was like literally like trying to get the document through the court system. And I remember like looking back and being like, I didn't even know the word abuse, but Mm -hmm. now that I'm five years in the system, something that I've learned over time and also through the work that I do is that the word abuse 
you almost can't even say it in front of the judge. Like that's usually, which I find shocking. And I know a lot of my clients find shocking. Can you share your theory? Why like words like abuse and narcissist and like these like real terms are so scary in like for uh, not that they're scared. They're not scary for us because we're living it, but it's like taboo in the system. Yeah. I can only say from what I believe and I think that it is because there are people in the family court system that just use those words and phrases and terms when that is not it. Mm -hmm. And it kind of waters down the victims who are experiencing that. And when you navigate, let's say, narcissistic abuse and you're saying that in the family court system, that doesn't mean even if your ex has a diagnosis, right? That does not mean that your judge is actually going to understand that because maybe they don't even have a psychology background. They don't know what that looks like. Maybe they have a completely different background. And I always tell my clients to research your judge. And a lot of them don't understand what I mean by that. Mm -hmm. And when you understand the way that the court system works is your judge was previously an attorney. Even if they're in family court, it does not mean that they were a family law attorney. They could be any other area of law and then they're now a family court judge. Yeah. So when you actually didn't know that and that is that's crazy. Mm-hmm. So then which also doesn't necessarily like make a lot of sense. You know, to have someone who's defining like the life of a child and I mean yeah. I know that it counts for us too but you and I are both moms and I know for me at least I don't want to speak for you that like I did. I would have done everything for my child. I didn't care about anything else even when I was in front of the judge. But I actually didn't know that, that there can be a judge that has no idea about the probate and family court system, and they are making decisions on a child's life. Yeah. Some of these are criminal law attorneys, public defenders, estate planning. And it's like, they go into family court and wonder, I don't understand why you guys aren't getting along. Well, because there's abuse, because there's domestic violence, because there's rape, because there's threats of murder. Mm -hmm. And when you get someone, especially a judge who is maybe a public defender background, you also have to know that that attorney, you know, before they were a judge, their job was literally to get their client off the hook, right? Mm -hmm. So then they become a judge. And then that is why they still have that idea of, well, maybe they're not so bad. Maybe they won't be an addict anymore. Maybe they won't abuse their kid, even though they abused you. They're still in that mindset. Yeah. And I'm sure we'll get into this, but that's where parental rights start to trump domestic violence. But before we get there, I wanted to touch on something that you just pointed to, and that's post-separation abuse. Because I think what we're talking about, that there's domestic violence, and there's abuse that happened within the relationship. And then there's also violence and abuse that happens after the relationship. That that sends us back into the family court system years and years and years and years after the divorce or after the first round. Yeah. And so can you define for us what post-separation abuse is? So post-separation abuse can include many layers. You could experience post-separation abuse and not be in the family court system. And what I mean by that is, so when you have a child with someone, again, whether married or not, and they are the abuser. You're now forced to co-parent with them, even if you don't touch the family court system. You still have to message them, text them, 
answer their calls so they can talk to the child. Maybe they're interrupting the calls. They could be threatening to call the police on you, calling CPS on you consistently. And everything I just said is not even you being in family court yet. So then you can also endure, you know, financial trauma, essentially, by them dragging you through the court system. And like I had just mentioned, the average cost of a high conflict case is $40,000. And let's say you're in an abusive relationship and they have convinced you to be the stay-at-home mom. How are you going to have $40,000 when you leave? Maybe... You know, in my situation, when I was in a coercively controlling relationship, I couldn't go anywhere that he told me we could not put our child in daycare. I was convinced before having our child that to quit all my jobs, I actually had completed no college. I would go right to the point of getting my degree and then I would stop. So I didn't even have a college degree that I could fall back on and get back into like the workforce. Yeah. So the capacity to earn enough to not only pay enough for me and my children, but to then pay $40,000 in the court system was impossible. So when you're entering into post-separation abuse, you're touching on all of that. And abusers will know you don't have the money and will play this like cat and mouse game as far as maybe you're not even in trial. And they'll do things like, consistently email your attorney or have the counsel email each other. You're being charged for all that, all the emails back and forth. You're being charged for playing, you know, them not fulfilling a subpoena that you've sent them. And you have to have your attorney email them back and forth and back and forth. And then they finally give in, or maybe they don't. And then you have to charge them for sanctions. And it can just continue within the court system or just generally after you leave. Yeah. I've had the situation and I have clients that have had the situation where the abusive partner is not following the agreement as written, or like if they have to pay for, you know, or split extracurriculars or something like that. And then you then have to go to court and pay more money than the extracurricular is even worth in order to get them like to pay, which then you're paying the attorney, you know, you're fronting the money for whatever that activity is or camp or something like that. And it just, it's like almost that you have to keep fighting, but you keep losing because right. if you don't fight the battle, then you'll never get the money, you know? Mm-hmm. And if you do fight the battle, you're actually not making any money. You're losing money right. as a result. Yeah. Okay. I, I make the joke sometimes that like sending my kids to ballet cost me $10,000 because it was this giant fight when it was literally like we were court ordered to split extracurriculars. But I knew if I didn't go in on that, that he never would pay. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I want to also touch on post-separation abuse in terms of like the mental and emotional abuse that happens. I think I see this more than anything else in my client base where while yes, there are these financial elements and I think a lot of clients can, or a lot of people in general can just take the financial stuff and they can see what's happening and put that in this box and begin to like understand it with the emotional stuff. I think it's so much harder when somebody is like getting emails that they don't need to respond to and they don't even know what to do. Because not responding feels like I'm just letting this person win and tell me who I am and like gaslight me. Responding gets you into a fight. So I wonder if you could just describe a little bit of like what the abuser is doing there. Obviously, they're shaking us up, but what is like the intent there? I personally believe that they thrive off chaos and thrive off you reacting. So when you were in the relationship, they still got that reaction. and. Once you've left, 
they still think that that's how you respond. And they get, it's almost like another form of supply, right? They get a high from you reacting. And then what they will typically do is then go to court and say, see, you know, she's crazy. I told you. Or see, she cusses me out. Or see, she's abusive. But in reality, it's they are triggering you. And it is definitely one of the hardest things to not respond and react in certain situations. And I mean, I will be totally honest that that was something that I struggled with in my relationship in co-parenting. I got to a point where I still remember this. My attorney would laugh at the things that I would either not respond to or the way I would strategically respond. And it wasn't because I was mean. It was because I switched to this like thought process of this is a coworker. Sadly, it's a business deal where I would even tell my ex, that's probably something you want to go talk to a therapist or your attorney about. That's not a conversation you need to have with me. Yeah. And I remember my attorney laughed at that comment. And he said, are you serious? You told him that? Yes, I did. And it may not be the best for everybody. I don't recommend everyone saying that. And it only, you know, in certain situations, but it's at a certain point where you have to say like, I don't need to put up with this. Yeah. And I think that like having a response or having a way to respond that protects you, but also like closes it in some way, because I think mentally, like there's always all these threads open with these people that saying something like, I think this is a conversation for your attorney or a therapist, not me. It allows you to be like, I'm not taking this on. Yeah. And I always tell my clients, my general rule is if they don't ask you a question, I don't recommend responding. Yeah. You don't have to attend every argument. And who cares if they think that they've won the little tiny battle because it is really about the war. Yeah. Yeah. It's a marathon, not a sprint. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And not a 5K and not a 10K. It is a marathon. Yeah. Well, I want to get into some hard truths about the family court system. And I think we just touched on one that it's like, we need to see this as a marathon and as like, it's a very long war. It's not these little battles, like these little battles we can get so hung up on, but we really need to stay focused on this long, big picture. Especially I think when our kids have physical and emotional challenges as a result of all of this and everything that's going on, the inconsistency and the abuse that it's so hard to not get hung up on those small moments, but to really remind yourself that this is a a long game and we're playing the long game and we're doing the best that we can. Yeah, absolutely. So I touched on this earlier, so I'm going to go back to it, but that parental rights typically trump domestic violence claims. I believe that's a very hard truth of the family court system and one that I know going into it, I never thought would be true. I never, ever thought that that would be a reality. Can you unpack that a bit for us and explain why the court typically will care more about parental rights over domestic violence claims? I think that a lot of us, I think I'm hearing it from you too. And the way my thought process was before even getting educated in all of this was, I guess we're going to go into family court and it'll just be a one-time, you know, court visit and agreement. And Sure, you know, whether it's 50, 50, 80, 20, whatever your percentage is, like this will just be the last agreement. And it's not like that when you go with an abuser. It is consistent revisiting court. They usually care more about hurting you than the children. 
But the core professionals, number one, attorneys that enable this type of behavior care more about the money. Yeah. And then you're in a court system that's not educated on domestic violence. So they think, or what I feel that they think is, well, you chose to have a child with this person. You were either married to them, you were in a relationship. Some people are in these relationships for decades. And then have this moment of, oh my gosh, like maybe they were groomed in their younger years and just now coming to the light of this has been abuse the whole time. And then you go into a family court system that's saying, well, why did you stay married for decades then? Yeah. And so I think that is why they kind of favor parental rights because they see it as, well, both of you are parents and both of you must be healthy because you can't possibly be married to this person or, well, you know, like I touched on earlier, well, maybe they're not addict, but they can get better. And yeah. it's always this mentality that is enabled by court professionals. Yeah. Like I have a client right now who is married for almost 30 years. Like she had numerous kids. I think there's four kids and they all like the last one is about to go to school and she has been on survival mode taking care of four kids and a house and pets and all of this stuff for years. And now that there's like one child left, she's starting to see all of the control and all of the abuse that's happened and is in shock that she's looking backwards and seeing everything. And then is like, and I'm going to have to go to court and stand up for myself. Like it's like, it brings in so much fear and shame, I think. And also knowing that like, you might not be believed. Yeah, I think that actually sadly happens a lot is the fear and also the reality that a lot of victims aren't believed. And the same goes for even reporting it to police that I personally do not believe the police are educated in domestic violence. So when you go to report crimes, you know, whether rape or anything really is they are of the mindset of, well, you need to have hard proof. And when you're in number one, when you're in abuse, sometimes you don't document anything. How are you supposed to prove anything then? And then two, it's why do I have to show up with proof when there is other, you know, the PTSD of it. And it is so hard to get someone to believe you in whatever area, you know, police, family court, attorneys, and so on. Yeah. I want to move on to another hard truth. And this is a tough one and this is a big one, but it's on alienation syndrome in air quotes, alienation syndrome in air quotes. And I saw this on your Instagram yesterday when I, when this is an older post, but you had a hard truth post and it said claiming alienation syndrome is a common tactic and the court still believes it and supports it. And so I know alienation in general is an extremely large topic. We could do seven of these podcasts on that topic, but if you could define what alienation is and what alienation syndrome is and maybe like why the court believes it, or why you think the court believes that it's a, a real thing. There's a lot of research, tons and tons and tons of research on how like this is not a real thing and this is not valid and the courts need to eliminate it, but probably not going to get into all of that today. But I'm wondering if you could touch on that. Yeah. So I first like to tell my clients, first of all, when you're going through anything, 
you want to label it, right? Like, yeah. oh my gosh, they have an addiction. Oh my gosh, they're an, it's a narcissist. Like you want to label. So I kind of understand why people are quickly attaching to alienation because it's a label you can put on something, right? Yeah. But the reality is it's actually domestic abuse by proxy. So mm-hmm. the abuser loses the power and control over the victim. So they will then move to the child and separate the bond of the child with the healthy parent. And a lot of people will not do that research to realize that it is still a form of domestic violence and abuse. And like you said, we can go on and on about alienation and all of the terms and everything in that. When you get down to it, it's just, number one, a term that was used, what, like the 80s or whatever it was. And it's more hands in the pot as far as money. And it's kind of wild because, so I I do have paralegal degree. And this is actually a topic that we took a whole like lesson on. Mm-hmm. And I was so shocked because, you know, we kind of touched on it in Tina Swithin's program and yeah. all of that, but I would say like very little, right? We, right. We, I think like for the, topic, but very yeah. little. And so I've kind of been diving into it a little bit because, you know, I don't support alienation and I kind of feel like there's other areas that I need to educate my clients in. So I just kind of say like, you know, label it domestic abuse by proxy, but I was shocked in my program that they were teaching this to paralegals. They were yeah. teaching them still. It's called parental alienation syndrome. And I was the only one that said, no, it's not. Stop calling it this. No, it's not. And the most interesting part, wild part, was the case we were given to talk about and learn about parental alienation syndrome was Mia Farrow and Woody Allen. Wow. And how Woody Allen, you know, was claiming parental alienation syndrome of Dylan, which was their daughter together, I believe, or Mia's daughter that she adopted. I really can't remember all that. But what the court professionals on their case were noting that he was having a romantic or sexual relationship with a child that she adopted, another, you know, a daughter that Mia adopted. And even though he was claiming parental alienation of Dylan, the court professionals and therapists and everything said she Dylan will not go on the stand and testify. She we're not going to have her anymore in this case because they didn't even think about the rape and molestation. They didn't even know about it at that time between mm-hmm. Woody Allen and Dylan. They just thought of the trauma that he was in a romantic relationship with basically her sister. Mm. And I actually brought that to my instructors. I mentioned that and I said, you're only giving this case, but you didn't mention how later Dylan came out as an adult to say, he did all of this to me. And when you really dive deep into the alienation, there's usually sexual advances and rape of minors. Yeah. So your training was giving the case as a case, but not including the whole story. Right. Which is, it's as if they were like just gaslighting everybody that's in there. And that, and then those, the problem is, is like, you know, you're so educated and you know, and like you have the brain to call these things out. You're so smart. You've been in this for so long. 
No one else was trained like this. No. They're probably listening to it, reading it and being like, oh, that's interesting. I didn't know this side of the story. Definitely. Yeah. And what's what's interesting is I was docked points. Oh my God. (laughs) And I was like, why? Why was docked points? Is it because I mentioned another case that you're not mentioning as the instructor? And also it's like exactly what you said. If other paralegals are trained on this parental alienation syndrome and only giving a piece of the pie and not the whole thing, what do you think attorneys are trained on? Yeah. I mean, none of it, I'm guessing. Right, right. Yeah. I know that this is part of the bigger bubble that we can't really get into, but I know at least in Massachusetts where I live, you hear about a lot of cases that are on the West Coast, I think publicly. We hear about Utah, we hear about California, we hear about, I think there's a big one in Nevada right now. Like we hear about these cases. I, in the past six months, I've heard about like seven specific cases in Massachusetts where the children were brought to reunification camps in New York. And I think it's a reminder and just like, maybe we can just call out the awareness of like, if you don't know what alienation is, there is information out there. And I highly suggest that you go and you read about it because it can happen. It is happening everywhere. There are, they, there's a lot of advocacy coming out from, well, the one I follow mostly would be Tina Swithin and all the work she does with One Mom's Battle. But there's also, there's a lot of other advocacy happening to try and shut down these reunification camps that that take kids away from their safe parent. Yeah. And I believe it's also the World Health Organization that now is removing that term. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. I think my prediction is like within the next five years, it's probably going to be reduced. But also when you are talking like reunification camps, I think there's going to be a longer timeline to see those slowly disappearing. But that is also a huge warning to healthy parents to not use that term. Because once you use that term, it can't be erased, right? Like when the judge reads it, it's going to be in there. And then you're now going to be in this other area and world of family court that you don't want to be in. Yeah. And I think that's an important point because when you say some of these words, right? Say you say, say as a healthy parent, you go in and you feel like, I think that you say something like, I think he's trying to alienate me. Now you have that stamped on your case of like alienation, which is something the court does not want to deal with. And then you get put with like, you'll be, you know, you kind of get the a la carte of family court. You can get a GAL, you can get like, you know, a psych test, you could get a parenting coordinator, like you just start going down the line of all these services they can put you through. And this doesn't happen to everyone, but it does happen to a lot of people. And now it's like, now everything gets like very convoluted and you start to lose control over your case. And so as a healthy parent, like I'd stay far away from that word. There's so many other words you can use. And that's why it's important to work with somebody like Tori or like myself that can help you work on the story and work on what's actually happening and align your facts without doing something like getting yourself in trouble in this way. Yeah. I know in California, there is a family law code that touches on fostering a relationship between the other parents. So even if you wanted to mention, let's say you're the healthy parent and your ex is trying to remove the kids from you or doesn't want to communicate with you while they have them or anything like that, you could still word it like, So, you know, my ex so-and-so does not foster a relationship between myself and our children. Yeah. That way you're avoiding that 
alienation word, but you're also mentioning and noting a family law code, which is what these judges need to note. Right. Right. That's so important. The last hard truth that I wanted to touch on is another big one, but you talk about this a lot on your Instagram and I've been following you for over a year now. So I've seen it come up a lot and it's about restraining orders. And so I think there's a lot of truths about restraining orders, right? But like the one, at least the jumping off point where I wanted to start was around that lawyers may push you to get a restraining order and then push you to drop that restraining order. And it is, I think, really confusing for the victim. And also it starts to like play a game with what will help and what doesn't help. And I think it takes away that value of what that restraining order is and what it says. I'm curious if you could just talk a little bit about, I guess, what you see as the hard truth around restraining orders and the use of them in the family court system. Yeah, I absolutely see it often where a victim will be guided, whether through an attorney or domestic violence organization or a therapist, and obtain a restraining order or a temporary restraining order. And what I see happen often is the abuser will then file one back Mm -hmm. and then right away, everything gets muddied. And then you obtain an attorney that says, okay, fine, you know, just drop it and do 50-50. And then as a victim, you're kind of left confused. Like, I thought I was going into this to protect myself and my child. Why am I dropping a restraining order to just give them whatever custody that they want? And why is abuse being ignored? And what I also find happening often is, especially when you're in coercively controlling relationship, is when you're trying to escape, most victims in those relationships don't have money. So then you're going to a domestic violence organization who helps you obtain a restraining order. And a lot of the times their staff doesn't know how to help you word what you've gone through. And also the victims struggle to identify it too. Maybe they haven't even done the research on it and just want out. This actually happened in my situation. And my therapist at the time said, you need to get a restraining order. And I just knew like, I I don't like this relationship anymore. I don't know if I even identified it as abusive. Mm -hmm. I just felt like, okay, why is he contacting all my guy friends? Why can't I go to the gym? Why can't I put my child in daycare so I can work? Mm-hmm. I didn't identify it as anything other than that. Yeah. And I was told to get a restraining order. So I went to a local domestic violence organization and it was just more so, okay, what do you have? And I wish that I went out with more proof because I was also like, if I can remember correctly, I even said, oh, well, he's a good dad. And, yeah. you know, and you're in this conditioning of, well, when they're good, they're good. But the reality is when you're co-parenting with an abuser, they're always an abuser. And yeah. you are not going into it with the true reality of how intense the abuse is. And once you leave, not only how dangerous it is, but also how it can affect your child when your child is in their custody. And yeah. I think a lot of victims don't understand that. And it's back to that, what we addressed earlier of, okay, I'll just go to family court and it'll just be a one-time thing or yeah. okay, drop their restraining orders and do a custody and whatever. And then maybe three years later, 
they get a new partner and then everything escalates again. And then you're back to this cycle of abuse and threats and CPS and all of the mess when you're of the mindset, like, I don't understand. We just separated and we agreed in court. I dropped the restraining order and so on. Yeah. And that like, that just reminded me of kind of like the beginning of our conversation where it was like, I'll just go to family court and everything will be figured out. It's like, I remember feeling like the court will see the truth. The court will understand. You get five minutes with the judge. The court doesn't understand. The judge just saw a case that like the, like, you know, the dad didn't show up because he had a needle in his arm somewhere else. And the guy, but you know, it's like, or these other two that are fighting about like somebody restricting parenting time and you're going in and you're like, my child wets the bed and she has extreme anxiety and like, this isn't working. And you look and you are disheveled, you know, and frustrated. And then like the judge doesn't see it. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of times too, I've had clients that have told me that they couldn't even testify in court. You're sitting there with trauma and even just the abuser looking at them, they can't even follow a sentence. So no one is supporting these victims in empowering them to testify as far as like impact statements and how to kind of shut out and put these blinders on because you have to be your loudest advocate, not, you know, your coach or your attorney or the paralegal on your case or the domestic violence advocate that attends court with you. No, it's you. You have to be your loudest advocate. And sometimes it does come from, you know, coaches or people like us who can say, okay, this is how you're going to phrase it. And this is the evidence or you endured this type of abuse and giving them that kind of roadmap. And there's little tips that I've given my clients in court. And I don't think attorneys do this. Like I've told my clients, you know, if it's on Zoom, put a post-it over their face. Mm -hmm. You don't have to see them. They could be swinging their arms around and making faces at you or even, you know, just them turning their camera on and off. Like it's getting you to notice them. Just put a sticker over their face, post it. Yeah. Uh, If you're in court, I told one of my recent clients, you need to write out your experience and your timeline and what you want to say and practice it over and over and over. And it's a, a muscle memory. So when you're in court with him, you've already practiced everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it's like, it's sadly something that you kind of have to almost in a way recondition yourself and approach it in that way. Yeah. Yeah. For mediation, one that I've told clients is I would start in the room with the high conflict individual, like obviously you have your attorney there and they have an attorney there, but I wouldn't stay there, but I would get a sense of how they're acting so that you can strategize based on that. So if you go in and they're already manic and like nothing has even started yet, and then you separate into your individual rooms, now you know that as you come across as the calm, focused, balanced individual, this other person is probably irate and manic and freaking out and the mediator is going to see that. They're going to see the stark differences. But sometimes it could be a tool just to know what you're dealing with. Yeah. Most cases that I take on, and I think this is also a state-by-state thing, yeah. sometimes we don't allow attorneys in. And for, for mediation. In mediation, yeah. Uh, okay, yeah. In Massachusetts, you can start together like or like you know, kind of do an overview together and then split off, which kind of gives you and then the mediator goes back and forth. But you're right. That's a really important point that state by state, these things could be different. Everything that we talked about today can be different state by state. Yeah, that's actually a really good point and approach as far as kind of 
noticing the behaviors of your ex. And that's one thing that I tell my clients is sometimes you don't have to react. Observing is such a powerful tool mm-hmm. of, of any part in your case. Sometimes like you, you're saying, observing in mediation or observing in the messages because they're, these, these types of abusers are great at telling exactly what they're going to do. Exactly mm-hmm. what they want to say in court. They just like spilling all the beans. And instead of you reacting, I think of it like a colander strainer, whatever you call it, and taking the pieces out of either what you need to respond to or what they're telling you and saying, oh, they're going to claim alienation or they're going to claim that I'm I'm a drug addict or whatever because they keep mentioning it. Then you can take that as a strategy and address it either in court or a different way or find documentation and and use that in a strategy and not approach them. But what you're saying is you're doing the same thing, but in mediation, observing their behaviors and using that to your advantage. Yeah, absolutely. You like approaching mediation as far as I tell my clients to come up with three different plans. Yeah. And it's kind of like when you buy a car, right? Like don't go in there with the best deal. Right. You don't go buy a house. You don't buy a car with like, Oh, this is the final offer and the best deal. Like that's not how you negotiate. And it's kind of, you know, our training, they touched on negotiating with terrorists, right? When they're negotiating, usually whatever they say up front is not really what they want. And as like, and I think as a strategy, you know, in working with a coach, that's something that your high conflict divorce coach can help you strategize around and understand it. Like, what are your high ticket items? Like for most of us, it's our kids you know, but then there might be some like other financial things, then what are their pressure points? Mm-hmm. And how can we strategize and think about this in a way that you're not going in and like fighting every single battle, but you're fighting your important battles. And there's ones that you're going to negotiate on, but you're not just going to give away high pressure items that are going to get your abuser essentially to bend a little bit. Because right. usually their high, high ticket item, it's usually not the kid. It's it's control uh-huh. in other ways. Yeah, right. They know that yours is the kid. So right. they will do like anything to, yeah, push that. Yeah. I know for sure I would have saved like tens of thousands of dollars if I had a strategy or a coach going into my divorce. And you just touched on a few amazing strategy pieces. I'm curious as we wrap up, if there's one thing that you want all of, the people that come into contact with you to take away in the family court system? One, either one idea, one strategy, one focal point, whatever that might be. Is there something that really sticks out to you as like, I just want people to know this? I think documenting is more important than people think. Yeah. that's And of course, it's like, you don't know what's important to document and it can be overwhelming, but knowing that abusers usually go in and just throw claims around with very little proof in family court it's kind of like the rules are there are no rules and you can kind of claim whatever but when you're coming in there with hard proof and evidence and what i would recommend for people is to know that when your abuser is saying things to you claiming whatever wild claim they want instead of reacting to them knowing you know what I'm just going to address this in court, whether you file it or, you know, you're responding to their filing that they, your abuser is not the person you need to address that to, that you need to all your documentation to the judge. And that is 
your child's clinical charts, the teachers, anyone you come in contact with that holds weight. I'm not talking, you know, friends or family. And sometimes that can, sometimes they can come in and witnesses, but also a lot of times that can be dismissed as hearsay. So when you have professionals that are noticing the abuse or your child's teacher that is noticing a behavioral change in your child or doctors. And I don't think that, or or most of my clients don't know that you can even get your child's clinical chart. And it's different than like your child's portal. Mm -hmm. It's a clinical chart that has notes on who was at the visit, the time you were at the visits, what they talked about, what they recommended. And Usually when you're in family court with an abuser, it's, you know, they don't want their child to be diagnosed with anything. They want to lie that they were at these appointments and they're such a great parent and you can support your stance, which is the truth of maybe they don't attend appointments. Maybe another professional, maybe your child was referred to a therapist and your ex is not even agreeing to go, but Mm -hmm. you can find the clinical chart that says your child was recommended to go somewhere. So that is what I mean by documentation, especially is those files that are important, you know, pictures, recordings, the hard proof. Yeah. And just to piggyback one thing on there, it's like timestamp documentation. So if like, obviously like everything that is written, helpful emails, all of that. But if you are writing documentation down just in notes in your phone, that is not putting dates or times or anything associated with it. It actually just updates the date every time you open it and you want a system that is going to record a date and a time if you're writing down like this is how drop off went or this is how pickup went and these were the issues and this is how Sally was when she came home and how the first day of school back was like do it in a way that has a timestamp so that you can show and prove that because the abuser will basically say it's not true. It's not real. And it's so I thought like, this was so fun. I don't know any other word to get my certification in electronic discovery because that is what they talk about is metadata. Yeah. And one of my simplest and probably my most favorite thing to do is if you have an iPhone, you can click, like if you save a picture in your phone, the albums, you can click the little eye icon at the bottom Mm -hmm. and it will show you the date and time usually location. Sometimes if they're sharing that picture with other people, sometimes it will tell you. Mm -hmm. You can even screenshot that little, I'll call it metadata that will show exactly when that happened. So you can submit the picture and then tap the little eye icon and then screenshot that too and submit that into court too. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. I love that. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I absolutely love talking to you. I felt like we could do this for like a whole other hour. (laughs) Um, Can you tell everyone how they can find you and connect with you? And if you have any current offerings, what they are? Yeah. So my company is called Onyx Arrow Consulting. My website is onyx-arrow.com. I am on Instagram and TikTok. I... Obviously, offer lots of free tips on my TikTok and Instagram. My DMs are always open. And I offer one-on-one, one-hour personalized coaching. I also have a membership. And I am hoping to launch my own podcast soon. So I know I'm so excited. And all of these 
interviews and podcasts that I'm on. I just love this and connecting with people and educating so many more people on domestic violence and family court, because I think it's a much needed field. Yeah, a hundred percent. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I will put the links in the show notes and maybe I can have you back on when your podcast launches and we can do like a part two. Yeah. Yeah. 